I would invite you to take your Bibles to Romans chapter 5, Romans chapter 5 and verse 18. And as you do so, I want to welcome uh, our visitors this morning. If you are a visitor or you haven't been here for a while, uh, we are certainly glad you're here. You're our honored guest, and we, would, uh, we want to make your visit even more enjoyable. And we'd like to talk to you, get to know you a little bit. Uh, but thank you for taking the time to be with us on this Lord's Day. It matters to us that you're here. Romans chapter 5 and verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Father, we're so grateful for your word. We're so grateful for the truth of the gospel, the privilege we have in, to open it up. And we would ask that your spirit would meet each and every one of us at our point of need. Uh, certainly, there's someone here that needs to know Christ and new birth, uh, that they would come into a saving knowledge of him, that you would grant them illumination and show them their sin, to get the repentance and faith, and they would leave uh, not as they came. And Father, we also would pray for your children, uh, that we would take familiar truth and be in awe of just the wonders of what you've done for us in Christ, righteousness, justification, because of your abounding grace. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, in chapter 5, as I mentioned a few times, and this will be the last time that we are in chapter 5, uh, it is a transitional chapter that carries us into the heart of Romans, uh, chapters 6 through 8. That is the substance of what the justified life looks like. Um, that is the uh, practical implication of our union in Christ and fleshing that out on the day-to-day practice of the Christian life. Within uh, Romans 5, there are three bridges. Uh, there are three therefores, which serve as bridges to look behind as well as to look ahead. Uh, they're found in verse 1, verse 12, and in verse 18. In verse 1, we find the first therefore, or the first bridge, which takes us back to Paul's uh, sweeping condemnation of all humanity, beginning in verse 18 of chapter 1, all the way through to justification by faith, illustrated by Abraham uh, in chapter 4, verse 25. So that's a very significant bridge. It takes us from where we were doomed, illustrated by Abraham, that works and law will not save you. And then we move into the second bridge, which is in verse 12. We spent some time looking at that, and that is the establishment of two humanities, that the world is divided in only two humanities, those who are in Adam and thus sinners condemned under the sentence of death, and those in Christ, beloved, reconciled, and recipients of abounding grace. Those are the only two. And as you come this morning, as you sit under the sound of my voice, you are either in Adam under condemnation, or you are in Christ unto life. There is no third you know, area of humanity. So you will find yourself uh, in one of those two. We also saw in chapter 5 uh, the, uh, the first mention of God's abounding grace. 
We saw the, the abounding grace in the person of the Lord Jesus, the free gift of justification by grace, as well as the free gift of righteousness. And now we come to 18 through 21 and conclude uh, with the final bridge. And it continues what Paul has been doing and what is his pattern in one of the most logical of his letters. And that is by the use of contrast. He uses contrast throughout these, uh, these chapter, this um, introduction to Romans. And the contrast in verses 18 through 21, there are many of them. There are five. Actually, in this short uh, amount of scripture, there are five contrasts. There is Adam versus Christ. There is Adam's one trespass versus Christ's one act of righteousness. There is Adam's disobedience versus Christ's obedience. There is death versus life. There's condemnation versus justification. So we have this wonderful unfolding of further contrast uh, that actually began in verse 12. And that's what we find Paul doing in verse 18 is he is picking up his argument from verse 12. Now, as we read this text and we just we did read it, you will notice that there is some repetition in here. There is the repetition of the one word one. Four times it appears, and there's also the repetition of the word reign or reigned, and it appears twice. And what I want us to do is to look at these two, these two aspects. In verses 20 and 21, we are going to see the reigning of sin in versus the reigning of grace. That will unfold in the exposition of 20 and 21. In verses 18 and 19, what I want us to do is I want us to focus on the mention of one as it pertains to Adam's transgression and as it pertains to the obedience of Christ. Now, when you read your Bible, and and don't try to force something, but when you read your Bible, you should always ask the Lord to show show himself to you. We should always open up our Bibles, not just to gain a knowledge of something, but we should open our Bibles that we would behold the glory of the Lord and thus be changed into His image. Now, I say that not that we force something, an attribute of God, into a text, but that we would understand that there are implications in texts that show us the overall what God is like as he's unfolded in other uh, portions of Scripture. And what I want us to see here, by the mention of the word one, as it pertains to Adam and as it pertains to Christ, is God's holy response. God's holy response to one sin and God's holy response to the one act of obedience by his son. Now, the importance of this can't be understated. Because our culture and even our church culture has a very low view of sin. We do not have a high view of sin. Sin is not a mistake. Sin is not something I just messed up. Sin is rebellion. It is a a refuting of who God is. It is heinous. And the series of sin could well be seen by it only took one trespass. One, one sin to cause humanity to be in the mess that they're in. And so when we look at Adam's transgression, let's look and see how God responded. God didn't look at Adam and say, I'll give you another chance. God did not say that, I listen, I'll give you a pass on this one. And how often do we even give ourselves passes on sins or even sin? 
And so we have here that Paul would write, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. The, there's a parallel there's the one trespass of Adam. There's the one act of righteousness by Christ. But in verse 19, he would even add to that. He said, so by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. I want us to go back to the garden. And I want us to think about the garden. And the simplicity of the relationship that Adam and Eve had with God. He gave them simple commands to obey. Friends, do not overthink the Christian life and do not make it more complex than God did. Because God has made the Christian life simple. Not easy, but he's made it simple. He said, do this and live. He says, if you love me, you'll obey. That is very simple. And in the garden... God looked at his choice possession and said, and blessed them and said, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over everything that moves on the earth. It did not take a scholarly mind, though he had one, for Adam and Eve to understand God's simple command. He said this, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, had dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds. And then he adds another one. But he would add this command with a warning. Genesis 3.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. That is a, that is a statement of grace. That is a statement of grace. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This was not difficult. The Lord says, I've blessed you with everything. I've told you to multiply. I've told you to have dominion over all things. Live in harmony with me. And here's what you got to make sure you do. Don't eat that. Don't eat it. Because if you eat it, then you are going to die. And Adam is scratching his head thinking, what, what is die? What is die? He didn't know. He never experienced that. And so what do we have? We have that they choose. As Paul says, one act of transgression. And Adam and Eve chose that one act. Adam chose that one act of transgression. And the world has been absolutely destroyed since. Friends, God, God is so animate about sin... That it only took one to plunge humanity into misery. James chapter 2 verse 12, 8 through 12. If you really, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality and you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one, fails in one point, has become guilty of all. In Major League Baseball, if you would keep five of the Ten Commandments, probably three of ten, you're going to go to Cooperstown. You're going to be in the Hall of Fame. James says if you disobey one, you are guilty of all. 
Simon Kistemaker said this of James, quote, he uses a sentence that states a condition. He says, if any one of you tries to keep the entire law of God, but stumbles in regard to one of the commandments, he is guilty because the whole law condemns him. And the reason why that we will encounter people on the street and talk about the gospel and talk about their need for Jesus Christ, and and even Christians may struggle with this, is that we think God is not serious on his judgment against sin. Well, I'm good enough. You know, if, I'm just hoping the scales work out. Is overall, I'm pretty good. And God says, one. You break one. And you will suffer the eternal consequences of my wrath. And if it isn't you breaking it, well, the first, the first Adam did it for you. And so you are not only guilty of violation of just even one that reaps my wrath upon you because of your own volition, but because of birth, because of the pass down of the imputation of Adam's sin to all of humanity, you're guilty for that as well, his one transgression. What we see then in this one transgression is God's unyielding character against sin. Is that his justice and his hatred towards sin demands of his creation unblemished, untarnished obedience from birth to death. And just one, one transgression led to death and condemnation. We may even see that in the fall of Lucifer. We may even see just one. In fall of the one who was called the star of the morning. Donald Barnhouse, Ezekiel chapter 28 verse 15 If you want to look at that, we're going to look at the fall of Satan. But Barnhouse said in Ezekiel 28, verse 15, it's the only place in the Bible which states clearly the origin of sin. And when you go back before into the the realm of eternity, and you see Lucifer, the, the, the dawn, the son of dawn, and you see him as the choice cherub, what did it take for him to be kicked out of heaven And to become the origin of sin. Ezekiel 28 verse 15. You were blameless. Here's God talking to Lucifer. You were blameless in your ways from the day that you were created. Till unrighteousness iniquity was found in you. In the abundance of your trade you were filled with violence in your midst. And you sinned. So I cast you as a profound thing, profane thing from the mountain of God. And I destroyed you, O garden cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud. It was the one sin of pride, the one transgression that took Lucifer and made him the devil, that made him Satan. Isaiah would record the fall in chapter 14, verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will set on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you were brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. One sin. One transgression. It was the pride of Satan. He was preoccupied with his own beauty his own glory, 
And the mother of all sin, pride, made him what he became. And friends, it's important that we understand that God tolerates no sin. He tolerates no transgression. And that the just penalty will be, will be leveled on all of those who fall under that condemnation. It's interesting that the parallel that he said of Satan, he says that you were blameless in your ways from the day that you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. Could that not be said of Adam? You were blameless. You were innocent until that day. Until that day. In Romans chapter 1 verse 18, Paul would unload and unfold the the condemnation of humanity by saying that God's wrath is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. You know what unrighteousness is? It is the committing of one single transgression that will plunge your soul into an eternal, um, um, eternal pit of hell. I want to spend time on this for this reason. If you're outside of Christ, you are not good. And you cannot be good. And that you fall under the the, the wrath of God. And you may say, well, I'm pretty good. I do good things. You have to understand that God's unwavering standard is perfection. And he can't grade anybody on a curve. If he did, then that is the height of blasphemy against the gospel of what he did. But on the other side of this, Christian, and that's for for you. If you are outside of Christ today, you may try to look at yourself and say, I'm fairly good. And I get that. There are a lot of good moral people that I know. I've got very good moral neighbors who would give the shirt off my back who are on their way to a crisis eternity. But but Christian, I, I want to stress to you that you can shipwreck your Christian life. You won't lose your salvation. You can shipwreck your Christian life by one transgression. You don't know the consequences of playing with sin. You don't know what will happen by playing with sin. There was a ship. It wrecked off the Irish coast a long time ago. The captain was a worthy seaman. He's a very careful pilot. The weather was not severe to explain why the ship had drifted so far off its safe course. The ship went down and loss of life for all. But so much interest was attached to the disaster that a diver was sent down. Among other portions of the vessel that was examined was the compass. The compass that was swung on the deck and inside the compass box was a small bit of steel which appeared to be the small point of a pocket knife. It appeared that the day before the wreck a sailor had been sent to clean the compass. He had used his pocket knife in the process and had unconsciously broken off the point and left it remaining in the box. The bit of knife blade exerted its influence on the compass and to a a degree that deflected the needle from its proper bent and spoiled it as an index of the ship's direction. So the captain was deceived because the compass was off kilter only by that little tiny piece of steel. 
and it wrecked the whole vessel. So it is with the ruin of mankind. Someone may say, but all they did was take a bite of a piece of fruit. So it wasn't a big deal, was it? What do you mean? I'm, I'm just, I have a tendency to be angry. It's not a big deal. I just, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just angry. Yeah, I know that, I know that I'm not supposed to look at these different websites on, on the web, on, on, but, you know, I'm, man, I'm human. One trespass led to condemnation. One. And Christian, don't play with sin for a second. Don't toy with temptation. And the minute that you start playing with temptation, you've already lost. You've already lost. And so Paul would say, by one trespass led to condemnation for all men. One. For by one man's disobedience, of many were made sinners. That should be enough. What happened in the garden. By one seemingly small thing. That should be enough to show us God's holy response to sin. And that in the life of his children, he will spare you no pain to keep you from destroying yourself. But temptation is real, and you can fall. And you can find yourself, as I mentioned, shipwrecking your testimony because of one unwatchful moment, of one period of not being on guard. But you go back to verse 18, and we see the contrast. So by one, condem- one act of, of uh, trespass, trespass or sin, condemnation came. So one act of righteousness leads to justification. One. One act. Now this is the first time in chapter 5 that Paul would use the word obedience as it pertains to the Lord Jesus. He has all along in chapter 5 written of the differences between Adam's disobedience and Christ's obedience, but with different terminology. Now the exact word obedience appears. And it is significant when compared with Adam. Because unlike Adam, who, this is where the contrast stops. Unlike Adam, it was one act of transgression. When Paul says the one act of obedience, that was the whole of Christ's life. Christ's life was laser-guided on the mission of his father where you could look at his life and he was concerned about one thing. And Paul would pick that up and save his own life. This one thing I do. And Jesus would look at Martha who was trying to do many things and looks at her and says, Mary... Mary has chosen the one thing. And so when you look at Paul and look at Jesus' life and we read that he, he was obedient, this one act of obedience, that's the whole of his life from birth to the cry on the cross and it's, he said, it is finished. And the rising up of the dead, from the dead. Now theologians call this his act of obedience. They call this two words. The first one is his act of obedience. His act of obedience. And this was Christ's total submission to fulfilling God's law. And the life of obedience to God's law was necessary. If Jesus did not have to live and fulfill the law of Christ, remember the transgression was against the law. If Jesus did not have to live the perfect life in fulfillment of the, of the law, then why not be born, go to the manger, and then go to the cross? Why live a life 
Why go through the sorrow of living in a cesspool of a world that is in rebellion against you? This life of obedience of Christ, this one act of obedience, consisted of his active obedience as well as his passive obedience. And his active obedience was just that, the fulfillment of God's law. Galatians 4, 4 through 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, under, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So you look at the fulfillment of the law in Christ's life. It serves two purposes. The first one, it qualifies him as a mediator. It qualifies him as the mediator because he was the perfect lamb of God. He fulfilled all the requirements of the law. Secondly, is the fulfillment of the law is what you need. It's what I need. I need an imputed obedience. I need Jesus to do what I could not do, but I'm still responsible for. I've had people tell me, well, if Adam sinned, why am I, why am I responsible for what he did? That's not fair. You don't even want to even go to the not fair question. That's not fair. Why should I be responsible for what Adam did? Well, the reality of it is this. Is it just because that one transgression plunged us into misery? And just because we can't keep the law of God, and just because we don't want to keep the law of God, that does not remove our accountability and responsibility for the law of God. Just because Adam sinned, God did not take away the requirement of obedience to his law. And sometimes we get that so, we, we drift away from that. Well, he can't hold me responsible for something I, I didn't do. God holds us responsible even though we have the inability to do what he holds us responsible for. Hence the glorious gospel. Because Jesus comes and what does he do in his act of obedience? He fulfills the law and by virtue of me trusting him, of you trusting him, is that God looks at us, imputes, gives to us the credited life of obedience of Jesus to us. Tell me how freeing that is. That God looks upon you and sees you as perfectly obedient to his law. And you say, well, I'm not. And you're right, you're not. But that's when you look away from yourself and you look to the life of Christ and you look at your high priest and you look at your mediator and says, I haven't keep that, but I praise your holy name. You did. And you said, if I trust you, that you would give me your obedience. This is a great cause for rejoicing. It's also a great cause for confidence. Because justification is a one-time act. And justification has to, has to include a fulfillment of the law in its totality of obedience. And it also has to have the law that was broken penalty paid. You, you cannot separate gospel from law. You have to have both. And we need to recover the importance of the law again. And he would say that. He would talk about Moses and, the, and where, where the law fits in. Is that the law identifies for us, and I'll talk more about that in a minute, is the law identifies for us sin, but it does more. And so we see the act of obedience of Christ. This one act of righteousness, his entire life leads to justification. And that's the act. But what about the passive? 
What do theologians mean when they say the passive obedience to Christ? As you might have mentioned, as you might imagine, it is submission to death on the cross. Did you know that his death on the cross is an act of obedience? He's not a martyr. He's not, he's not a guilty man being inflicted capital punishment by the Romans. He's not hanging on that tree as a martyr. He's hanging on that tree as a substitute. He's hanging on that tree where I should be hanging. And where you should be hanging. And this passive obedience to to Christ is captured well in the hymn of Philippians chapter 2. And being found in human form, he humbled himself. And became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. But as I mentioned, this heading, this direct, this, uh, this point in the outline in the message is we're looking at God's holy response. How did God the Father respond to his son's obedience? How, how did God the Father in this, fellowship, this triune fellowship that was enjoyed by them throughout eternity, how did he see his son? I mentioned it in the ABF. Do you know the Lord Jesus, he lived a U-shaped life. Glory. Glory, suffering, glory. U-shaped life. How does the father look at his son who left glory, comes down to suffering, to go back to glory? I think it's very important for us to see the father's response to the son. The father's holy response to the son's obedience. We saw the holy response to Adam's disobedience. What about the father's look upon his son? And, his, and I've used this word a couple times, and forgive me for the redundancy, but the importance of this is this. As we see the heart of the father to the son, we're reminded what Jesus says. As the father has loved me, so do I love you. Have you realized that as, Jesus, as the father loves Jesus, so the father and Jesus loves us? I struggle with that. I, str- I want to know more of the love of God. And if you want to be a confident Christian and a humble Christian and a forgiving Christian and a fruitful Christian, you need to be lost in the holy amazement of God's love. We need to see more and more of His love. Because the more and more we see His love, the more and more we're conformed into the image of Him who loves us. And, and, and I'm gonna, I just want to read... Four, four portions of scripture and three from Matthew. And this is how the father views the son in his obedience. The first is at his baptism. Matthew three seventeen. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son. With him, I am well pleased. Well pleased. Take yourself out of the picture right now. Don't even think about your salvation. Don't even think about your justification. Sit there and just listen to the dialogue between the Father and the Son. And listen to the Father's heart to the Son in His act of obedience. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased in His baptism, obedience. And then we go to Matthew chapter 12 and we find the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. 12.18, Behold my servant whom I have chosen. My beloved, there's again the word, my beloved. With, With him with whom my soul is well pleased, 
I will put my spirit upon him and will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Do you see again the father? He says, my beloved son, that I am well pleased. And here's a staggering truth. If you're a Christian today, you are in the beloved. We are in the beloved. Oh, to know more of the freeing power of God's love in the life of the believer. And it's all because of the one act of obedience. And I'm not minimizing that. This one act of obedience, Jesus in his act of obedience endured, endured so much to fulfill a law to give us the credit for his obedience and qualify himself for the mediator so that when his passive obedience would be complete, God can look at us and say, beloved. And he can look at us and say, well pleased. It goes more, there's more. What about the Mount of Transfiguration? And he was still speaking when behold a great cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. I think it's so important to see the price that was paid for our redemption, our justification, that one act of obedience. It is so important for us to see the perspective of redemption from God the Father. Because God the Father is the originator of the plan. It's God the Father in the eternal council that determines to save sinners. And he commissions the son who says, I'll go and I delight to go. And it's the spirit who is going to take the work of Christ in his passive and active obedience. And he's going to open up your mind so that you'll see the wonders of the gospel. And he'll enable you to embrace that where you can cry out, my beloved. Let's move on to verses 20 and 21. So we see then the contrast. And we see also the holy responses of God. First to the one transgression of Adam and then to the one life of obedience to Christ. His father took great pleasure in what he did. And he takes great pleasure on those that he gives to the son in the covenant of redemption. Verse 20 and 21. So now we're going to see another contrast and this is how it ends. It's a contrast between sin's reign and and grace's reign. But what is important in this contrast is to see it's not of equal value. It's not of equal value. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What do we see then in verses 20 and 21? Paul says the law came in to increase the trespass. And where sin increased, the skip grace abounded all the more. We get that in the second point. So that as sin reigned in death. So what we see is the reigning power of sin in Adam's humanity. The reigning power of sin in Adam's humanity. Paul is mentioning the law again. He's mentioning the difference that the law of Moses makes. This to take us all the way back to verses 13 and 14, which we won't. But what we do know is that even without the law, the sin is still present because of conscience. He brought that to bear on the Gentiles in the early chapters. But when he says here in, in, in verse 20, now the law came in to increase the trespass. That does not mean that the law creates more sin. That's not what that means. I love what Christopher Ashe said. What Paul is saying here is that the presence of the law makes guilty people more obviously guilty. He says the law comes down upon us as a magnifying glass 
to really explode just the heinous nature of sin. And Paul would say in Romans 7, and we'll get there someday, what then shall we say? That the law is sin by no means, yet if it had not been for the law, we'd not have known sin. For I have not known what it was to covet until the law said, you shall not covet. But what I'm going to focus is on the word reigning or reigned. If you're outside of Christ today, we already talked about this numerous times. You have absolutely no power to break the chains of sin in your life. You have absolutely no power to change your heart. You have no power to know God. And you can say, well, I'm quite religious and I do a lot of good works. And none of that will change your internal self. When Paul says reign, the reigning power of sin, this is someone that, that has a mastery over another. The word reign is like a king or someone in absolute authority that holds its subjects in such bondage that they can't get out. We find in Ephesians chapter 2, you're dead in trespasses and sins. That you once walked in the, in the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. That you were now, you were children of disobedience or sons of disobedience. You all lived in the passions of your flesh. Carrying out the desires, the body and the mind. And were by nature children of wrath. What did you have to do with your physical birth? Nothing. And Paul says, if you're outside of Christ, you are children of wrath. And you're that because of Adam, and you're that because of your own choices. And here's how powerful sin is. You cannot kill one sin in your life. Not one. And and maybe you've even tried. Maybe you've tried to kill lust. Maybe you've tried to kill coveting. Perhaps you tried to say, you know what? New resolution today. I am going to have a controlled tongue. I want you to, I want you to, to, to contact me in, in seven days and tell me how long that lasted. You have no power to control and no power to change your heart. Sin reigns in Adam's humanity. And that's what Paul would say here. Is it sin, where where the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, so that sin, sin reigned in death. You have a master, if you're outside of Christ, reigning over you, that you cannot break those chains. And isn't that what makes the words of Jesus so wonderful? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of, the, of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Sin's oppression, sin's reign, sin's holding us captive. There's only one answer to that break, and that is the glorious gospel of Jesus. It's only the gospel of Jesus. And that leads to verse 21. Look what verse 21 says. Grace also might reign, through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, when you read this, be very careful. Because you got to read the part where it says in verse 20, grace abounded all the more. And he's already mentioned this a couple times. He mentioned much more grace, the abundance of grace. Christian, 
if you're struggling in an area of sin today, and you say, I just can't get over this. I can't defeat this. Understand that the gospel has not only saved you, but the gospel has provided you the grace that overcomes all sin. There is never a sin in the Christian life that you cannot conquer. Not in the strength of yourself. It's in the strength of grace. And that's what he's saying. He's saying that grace abounded all the more. We'll see that more in in verse 1 of chapter 6. But the point I want to get at today is that you got this contrast. Sin reigns over you and you can't break it. But if you run to Christ, you're going to have overflowing grace. And grace is going to come and break the chains of sin where you'll never again be in bondage to it. That you won't have to live in the bondage of sin. And as a Christian, you don't have to live in the attitudes of bitterness and of ugliness and of anger and of, false, and of, and of speech, ungodly speech. You don't have to give in to these sins of the flesh. You can be free from that. Why? Because where sin abound, where sin came, grace abounded more. Charles Spurgeon said this, Sin may be a river, but grace is an ocean. Sin may be a mountain, but grace is like Noah's flood which prevailed over the tops of the mountains 15 cubits upward. That's 22 feet. Isn't that so beautiful? I find that sometimes we as Christians, you know what we do? We focus so much more on our sin and not our Savior. We focus so much more on failure than the amazing grace that God takes our failures and shows us grace and makes us even more fruitful because of His abundancy of His grace. As I read verse 21, I'll close with this. That grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is language of conquest. This is language of triumphant victory. 1 Corinthians 15. Death is swallowed up in victory. Remember, sin reigned to death. Paul says in the Corinthian, closing out the great resurrection chapter, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? It's gone. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory in Jesus Christ. And so as we close out chapter 5, we see God's responses to sin. Just one. We also see God's response holy response to the obedience of his son, so well-pleasing. And because of, of his obedience, we can rejoice today because where sin did reign, grace abounded much more. And it's all because of Christ. It's all because of the gospel. And so I challenge you, I encourage you, that if you're outside of Christ today, stop trying to be good. You can't. Stop thinking that religion is going to get you to heaven. It won't. And simply come as you are with open hands and say, have mercy to me, a sinner. Give me the grace that can save me, that can break me from the chains of my religiosity, can break the chains of my morality, can break the chains of me thinking I'm good enough. Give me the grace that shows me how wretched I am so I can see how wonderful you are. And he'll do it. He'll do it. Why? Because where sin reigned, grace abounded all the more. So the question for each of us to ask as we close out chapter 5, and he identified the two humanities in Adam, in Christ, you need to ask the question, where are you? Are you in Adam? Outside of Christ, that means you're under condemnation. 
and you can't get that blanket off? Or are you in Christ? If you are, then thank Him more for amazing grace. Martin Luther once said, he said, sin will either lie on you or it will lie on Christ. You choose. You choose. Father, thank you so much for your great love and your grace, which is absolutely amazing. Thank you that unworthy sinners are recipients of the worthy obedience of Christ. Father, may we see how serious sin is, just one. May we also see your great pleasure in the obedience of your Son that we fuel our love for you and our love for him, our love for the plan of redemption. And so, Father, we thank you that where sin was reigning, grace abounds all the more. May we live that for the glory of Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.